1: Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra. As always, with James from Gunnar Blog. James, good morning to you. Good morning
2: to you too. How are you doing, Andrew?
1: I'm all right. I've got a cup of tea here in my uh, poorly drawn Arsenal Michel Arteta mug. Nice. And uh, it's it's a very good cup of tea. I'm more of a coffee person, but every so often I go for a good cup of tea, and, uh, and this is a good cup of tea. What my makes time. it so good? I don't know, just the right amount of, like, only a small bit of milk. Sure. I, I don't take uh, sugar in coffee, but I take sugar in tea. So two two sugars makes it nice and sweet. Oh, nice. Proper builder's tea. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I don't have any biscuits, though. That's the problem. Don't have anything to to dunk or dip, you know, a good ginger nut or, a, yeah. you know, a, a Garibaldi or whatever. I don't have anything.
2: Like that, oh, so. I'm sorry, That's man. Fine. I'll do what I can. I'll pop something in the post. All right. Thank you. Thank you. How are you this morning? Yeah, I'm good. I guess I sort of feel uh, slightly empty inside. It's so rare and weird to be doing one of these <laughs> and it not being a goodly morning and three points for the Arsenal. Um, yeah. It takes some adjusting, doesn't it? It does. You know,
1: it's it's quite something because we had – I don't want to get into the questions part of it, um, but I, I, I did notice a few questions, you know, from people who are like – what is this? What what is this terrible feeling I have inside? Why do I feel like we've lost? What is, you know, it's like Mikel Arteta, he made me care again and now I feel feel things. I don't want to feel anything. You know, it's like (laughs) those kinds of reactions from people, which I completely get. I understand exactly where they're coming from. But I think it does speak to, you know, just how good our start to the season has been that a... A 1-1 draw away from home against a side who have been problematic for us, it's fair to say, in recent seasons. We're coming away from that feeling like, ah, fuck. I think that says a lot about, A, our expectations, but, B, also, you know, just how good the team has been.
2: Yeah, we've raised the standards. We've raised the level. Yeah. And so, you know, we are really looking at this like two points dropped. I think, you know given Southampton's position in the league and various things like that, it would always have felt like that. I think particularly given the pattern of play, um, particularly in the first half, Mm. it again feels like two points dropped. But, you know, I I do think once they got their goal and, you know, obviously you're hoping Arsenal can kick on and, and get a winner. But I also in the back of my mind was thinking... It is important we don't lose here. You know, I know those two points are really precious, but I just think for our momentum, defeat would have been a real kicker. So, sure, disappointing to to not win. But um, I agree with you. I think that tells you a lot about how far we've come, Uh, the the degree of disappointment we all feel. Sure, plenty to unpack in this one because
1: um, you know it, it was a game I think full of incident some of which will frustrate us more than others, no Mm -hmm. doubt. Um, And, you know, I think the, 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 the gut feeling I have anyway, just sort of before we get into the nuts and bolts of it, is that in recent years, I don't think we've come away from Southampton and been able to say we should have won that game. Yeah. And I think yesterday we should have won that game we had the opportunities to win it and that i you know that could be why people are getting a little bit anxious they're fretting a little bit about certain aspects and we'll we'll obviously uh, discuss those but you know silver lining to the cloud of dropping two points is that you know when you look back on the game objectively look at the chances look at the opportunities that both teams had we are culpable for not making the most of those but we should have won the game based on the amount of chances and the quality of the chances that we had. So I think mm. I can take some some comfort in that, even if other aspects of that particular thing might be
2: worrying, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's true. I think this game was quite reminiscent of the Leeds game in some respects, in that I thought that Arsenal's first-half performance was much stronger than their second-half performance, which was – Certainly true at Ellen Road. Mm. Um, I think this was a better performance, don't get me wrong, uh, than the Leeds one. And funnily enough, we won that game. But in that game, the calls went in our favour, largely, the mm. officiating. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that in this game, they did not. Uh, and sometimes that is the difference, isn't it, between three points and one, Um And this felt like one of those afternoons. But I also think there is a culpability on Arsenal's part too in terms of the chances that we passed up. And I've seen a lot of talk about, you know, we we didn't dominate the whole game and the intensity dropped. And I do think to a degree that is just absolutely inevitable with the schedule that Arsenal have. I think the key thing is you capitalise in the moments where you are on top. Yeah. And I just don't think we did that enough. You know, we never got the second goal, which would have killed the game
1: for sure and i think the schedule is a is an important consideration as well because you know we we all looked at october and said that's going to be tough yeah that is going to be tough playing every three four days you know how are we going to cope with this and some days are going to be better than other days i don't think you can overlook that as a as a consideration in maybe how we fell away in this game and didn't Didn't do as much in the final 20, 25 minutes as you would have liked after the Southampton goal. I think that could be part and parcel of of the schedule. Um, You know, Mikel Arteta was very clear that we didn't do the simple things right. And I think he's absolutely spot on there. Too many passes went astray, players getting caught in possession. You know, we'll come to that. Um, but I, I do think we have to look at the schedule and maybe look at, you know, a squad which isn't quite as deep as we might like to cope with that schedule. And, and inevitably, I think it will catch up with you to an extent. I don't necessarily think we were, like I saw the word fatigued being used quite a bit. And, and mm. maybe there was an aspect of that with one or two of the players. But I don't really think that was an explanation for for what went wrong in the in the second half and in the final 20 minutes. But um. We'll come to that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Team selection. I think pretty much as expected, but Takehiro Tamiyasu started at left back. Yeah. I love him. He's a great player. But I think I said before the game that I would like to see Kieran Tierney start to give us a more sort of um, natural overlapping fullback on the left-hand side. And we know the way... Mikel Arteta wants the left back to play and certainly in those central areas Tommy Asu is is very good you know he's a left-sided center half for Japan he can slot into that midfield player position pretty easily but what he doesn't give you is is an outlet on that left you know mm-hmm. and I know a lot of what we do from the left-hand side is cutting in from left to center if you like you see Martinelli do it quite a lot Gabriel Jesus very often will drift out there and then come back into the center do you do you worry maybe a little bit that we don't have quite as much width on the left-hand side this season, as good as those things are and as, as encouraging as it's been when we played, for example, Zinchenko as a left-back and he plays in those central areas? Do you worry maybe that we don't get quite enough overlap on the left?
2: I have to say I don't particularly because... I think Martinelli spends a lot of time in that area of the pitch and also Granit Xhaka Mm. overlaps quite frequently when we sort of get into the attacking third. And, you know, it's it's quite becoming quite a common sight to see Xhaka swinging in across from sort of outside the width of the penalty area. Um, It doesn't bother me as much as it bothers some. And I I think the Tomiyasu selection... I I understand it. I think Arsenal do, do really miss Zinchenko, Actually, I, I think I don't think that's sort of post hoc analysis. Mm. Um, I really think if you think back to our first few games of the season, the level of sort of creativity and and calm in possession we had building up from the back on that left hand side, he actually did overlap a fair bit as well when required. Um, I think we I think we just don't quite have a player who can replicate that and. I'm not saying we should. I mean, it's mm. extremely difficult to do. But I guess Arteta seems to be of the mind that Tommy Asu is the closer allegory as a player. Um, but it, I, I equally see, you know, you bring Tierney on and suddenly he's overlapping down the left and it, that looks attractive and appealing. But if that isn't the shape that Arteta intends to set up with from the start, then mm. I can see his thinking. I mean, part of me wonders if... I was watching this game and... Um, Set pieces were a huge thing for Southampton. I mean, it was basically their only threat in the game for, I'd say, 90% of it, Yeah, corners and long throws. And with Tommy Asu being, you know, six foot three and extremely good in the air, I did wonder if that may have been a consideration for Arteta heading in. Maybe so. Maybe so. Um,
1: I'm just having a look at the, the stats here. Uh... Three tackles, three interceptions, one clearance. So, I mean, that that succession of corners that Southampton had in the first half was their was their greatest threat. You know, Ward yeah. Prowse is is you know can deliver a good dead ball, no two ways about it. But I I, I think equally we defended set pieces and long throws pretty well. All things I considered, we did really you know?
2: well. Like that Gap- set, that run of like six corners, which were all played with quality, like into the edge of the 6 mm. yard box. You know the likes of Gabriel, I thought was excellent defending that stuff. Granite Xhaka was ten very good.
1: clearances he made yesterday. Gabriel, was it ten? Wow. Ten.
2: Well, I thought he was brilliant in his own box. Yeah, penalty me too. Box. Me too. Um, and that's the sort of thing where if you get the three points, we're sitting here lauding the set piece defending and mm. saying, "Wow, showed such organisation um, and commitment." But yeah, I thought Arsenal were really good. on on defending those set balls. And I don't know, you know, he picked Tommy Asso against Liverpool and Leeds and that was probably less of a consideration then. But as I was watching it play out and I was watching us defend those set pieces really well, Mm. I I did have the thought of like, is that a factor in this selection? Um, Yeah. I don't know.
1: I don't know. I mean, look... Maybe it is. Maybe it is. It gives you presence. It's not as if Southampton, though, had a you know big guy up top or anything like that. But, you know, yeah. I do wonder. They like
2: left him on the bench, which was very nice to them. Yeah.
1: The only thing I would say is that, you know, over the years, and that's not to sort of um, scratch at old wounds or anything like that, but left back has sometimes been a, I don't know, not quite an Achilles heel of Mikel Arteta's, but one where he has a tendency sometimes to overthink. If that makes sense, um, I don't know if that's the case here, but you know I think Tierney, particularly when Southampton went to a back five, Tierney gave us um, quite a bit in that second half. I think of the the three substitutes we made, he was certainly the most impactful. but yeah. let, let's go back to the start. and Arsenal were really good. Like they blitzed Southampton in the in the opening 10, 12 minutes. Um, mm-hmm. like in the first minute, Gabriel Jesus went through. He's offside. Then there was um, the Granit Xhaka shot. Wasn't there the one uh, that the keeper yeah. made? save?
2: Jesus was tackled in the box and Xhaka sort of thrashed yeah. in a shot from out wide. Before oh. that, Saka played an incredible cross. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Almost got Gabriel on the end of it. Yeah. Um,
2: um, Odegaard. O- Odegaard had a chance. Yeah. Eight. That was eight minutes in, so... It was, a, it was a really strong start again from Arsenal who've been so good coming out the blocks quick.
1: Yeah, and it was. I mean, the, the strong start was rewarded with a very good goal. I think, um, you know, I made the observation, not a very um, smart one or anything like that, on the live blog that we have to make this uh, dominance count. You know, you have to get something at the end of it because you know yeah. what the Premier League is like. And and we did. We came up with a very good goal. I've watched it again. I was watching Match of the Day again this morning before we were talking. And it is a superb finish from Granite Shack. Absolutely unbelievable right-footed half-volley keeper has no chance. Um, that position he takes up in the box, sooner or later someone's going to have to smart up to that because he's in there quite a bit as we saw against PSV the other night and we've seen throughout this season this is where he's popping up in this sort of central area and and they're ignoring him because or not paying enough attention because they go oh it's only you know it's only Granit Xhaka but um, brilliant finish but I think the quality of the ball from Ben White is really really good he doesn't just sort of hit and hope he has a look and he clips it in perfectly for Xhaka in that position to uh, to apply the finish
2: yeah, and it's interesting. I, I'd watched a couple of moves where Arsenal got to the byline and pulled it back. And and I know you say opposition have got to smarten up to it, but to a certain extent, there's only so much they can do. I mean, Arsenal now have like three or four runners in the penalty box every time the ball gets into those wide areas. And it just creates a situation that's really hard to defend. is often the spare man, the one who isn't mm. tracked as well. But yeah, it's a brilliant, brilliant cross. Brilliant finish. The move actually comes right back. I think there's a couple of one-twos played with the goalkeeper. Um, and then he plays a pass into Thomas Partey, who I have to say in the first half was sensational. Second half, mm. substantially less good. Um, but, you know, he I, I was watching the move and thinking what a gift it is for a goalkeeper to have a guy who you can give him the ball even when there's three men within eight yards of him. Yeah. So there aren't many footballers you can say that about. And even in the second half, when we changed system and shape a little bit and Shaka was dropping deep to take the ball off the keeper at times, you could just see that he's just a bit more cumbersome in in that situation, in that setting. Partey's just excellent. And yeah, very good move. Lovely flip from Saka, Brilliant ball from Ben White. And what a finish. I mean... I made this joke yesterday, but if if everyone on our team had been quite as clinical as Granite Shaka, we would have been home and dry.
1: Oh, we would have, yeah, we would have, we would have won this game four or five nil. Yeah. It's a, it's a brilliant finish um, from a player who's in just outstanding form right now. Mm. Uh, and I thought, you know, he was instrumental in that period in in the first half when we were when we were on top. He's you know, pulling
2: out flicks and tricks now as well. I don't know if you've noticed that, but there were a couple of touches. There was one against uh, PSV oh, the other night. the one with the, the outside of his heel. Poof. Yeah, and there was another one like that in this game where I think he just sort of let the ball bounce off the outside of his foot to mm. play a little Giroud-style flick around the corner. Um, he's, fl- he's flying at the moment, and it's good to see. Um, a key moment then
1: occurred in the game for me, which, you know... We're, we're on referees at this point now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just want to say before we start down this line of discussion that the comments we've made about Arsenal not making the most of their opportunities are entirely accurate. You know, you can absolutely make that case and you can say we should have made the referee and his baffling display irrelevant because of the opportunities we had. I think that's true. But that doesn't make the referees display any less baffling or or frustrating, because it really, really was. This incident, the one, the Gabriel Jesus penalty incident, mm-hmm. I mean, that is, to my mind, a clear penalty. It's very possibly a red card. If you were being super generous to Southampton, you would say that there is another defender making his way over who might be there to cover, but he does not make any um, attempt to play the ball. He's got his arms around the man in the box. I saw people say, well, he went down a bit easily, but what are you supposed to do? When you're a forward in the box, there's a guy pulling at you and grabbing you, and he's got his arms around you. What are you supposed to do? You go down. You know, There's no two ways about it. For me, that's a penalty. Potential red card. And if we score the penalty, it's 2-0 against 10 men for 75 minutes. That's a very different game.
2: Yeah, I agree. Uh, My only thought on it is I'm not sure if the foul started outside the box and what that would mean for the ultimate decision. Um, I remember watching it and thinking, you know, I think that might have begun outside and then who knows where they would actually blow for the the incident. But it's definitely a foul. Um, And that was... I mean, to be honest, that wasn't, in my opinion, the worst refereeing decision of the first half. No, I agree. I agree. <laughs> Which is saying something. It, it was one of those games where, you know, I'm really not someone to buy into any kind of uh, conspiracy theory, but it was one of those where you you can't help but wonder if someone looked at the Leeds game last week and thought, "Oh, Arsenal got a few calls there. I mean, it may just be law of averages. We, I think we mm. did get a few calls at Leeds um, and we... And we got absolutely nothing at Southampton. And that may be coincidence. Uh, equally, you know, I guess there's a chance it's not. But yeah, it was a very frustrating decision. And and I felt for Gabriel Jesus because essentially the referee permitted a degree of physicality on him that I think made it a real struggle for him to impose himself on the game. I agree. I mean, if,
1: if that's the bar, if you're the Southampton defender and you say, well, look, I can grab him, yeah. wrestle him, put my arms around him while he is goal side of me and running towards uh, my goal to try and score. If I can get away with that, what can I do when the ball is played downfield and I'm, you know, he's got his back to me as a defender? I can just do whatever I want. And that yeah. played that, that turned out to be the case. That, um, what's it was a rooftop
2: name? bar. It was yeah. the highest bar you could possibly imagine. Yeah, it really was. Um,
1: I can't remember the guy's name. Kuleta Tsar, is that a, how you pronounce yeah,
2: it? Yeah, I don't know. I don't um, know. Um, what was his name? Yeah, uh, Kuleta Tsar, something like that. You
1: know? Yes, I think so. My apologies um, to any Croatian listeners if I'm butchering that. But he was allowed manhandle Gabriel Jesus and ragdoll him around for the entire game. And that's exactly what he did. Um like a couple of the decisions in the second half in particular where Jesus was absolutely hauled to the ground. Like you can challenge for the ball, but you can't put your arms around a player and pull him to the ground to get the ball. Like this, this I assume is like a consequence of the let it flow edict, but there's a very big difference between letting a game flow and allowing one player or two players on one team to foul consistently throughout the game without any kind of censure whatsoever. You know, it it I don't really get it. It was bizarre uh, some of the decision making. I mean, you mentioned the you mentioned the first half. What did you think was the worst decision of the first half and why was it the Bakayo Saka booking?
2: <laughs> well, it was that. It was that. And you know, I, I should say it, despite that penalty not being given Arsenal continued to uh, you know, create a a couple of opportunities. I think Jesus had that one that went into the side netting after a really nice Odegaard pass after party won the ball high up the pitch. Southampton changed their shape around this time. They went to five at the back and I think that gave them at least a foothold in the game. But yeah, the Saka booking, I, I thought the refereeing of Saka in the first half was outrageous, really. I mean, because there was the booking and then what was there later in the half? I think that was, he got bumped off the ball and didn't get given a free kick. Yeah,
1: just, a very obvious free kick for, again, that kind of thing where you're you're basically being pushed over, manhandled, thrown around by a much bigger defender, which, you know, I I, I love a bit of physicality in football, but like a foul is a foul. That
2: yeah, was a foul. Defenders know that, you know, as a, as a defender, you know, sometimes you're like, well, you know, I've, I've I've committed a foul there. I mean, I bet they couldn't believe their luck. They got away with that one. The booking, I just thought, to be honest with you, I I wasn't convinced that it's a penalty, but I was was, outside, I certainly thought it wasn't a booking. It was outside the box, wasn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. But even so, I sort of thought it's sort of a coming together. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, I, I, I wasn't desperately appealing for a foul, but I was shocked that it was a yellow card.
1: Oh, me too. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, this this is sort of after what's the guy who gave Gabriel Jesus a couple of whacks in the back, leanco Yeah. If you see that. Yeah, one, that was,
2: that was, that was crazy. I he mean, he
1: swung an elbow and he actually hit him. Like, I mean, it's not like this sort of, it's not going to win you a world title fight, that kind of punch, but you no, know, but it's we still people
2: sent off for much less, yeah. you know, like leaning their head towards somebody. Douglas Louise was sent off the other night, wasn't he? And, you know, or like raising their hand to touch a player's face, or whatever it might be, uh, as
1: has yeah. happened at the end of the second half with uh, with Inkeria. You know,
2: yeah, yeah, and, and this and that guy. You know, he gave that he gave Jesus a couple of whacks. I mean, you can't do that in a sort of VAR era and, and expect to get away with it, unless apparently you're playing in this particular match. I mean, if you are a conspiracy theorist, I gather Southampton have never lost with this referee in charge. So. Well,
1: apparently neither have we, so... You know, I, don't-
2: <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that, how quickly that shoots that down. Um, but, yeah, I, I really, you know, it just felt... I mean, even... The Southampton fans, I think, I, you know, I was reading a bit last night as I tend to sort of have a little dig around social media and see what they're saying. And I think even they were aware the referee was pretty generous to them on the day. Um, I think so. I think
1: so. I mean, the even the accumulation of fouls should have led to, like, if you're booking, like, how can you book Saka and not give that penalty? You know, the two things don't make any sense. If you're booking Saka for that, then the other thing is, like, a penalty all day long. I just, I just yeah. don't get it. Um, you know, and again, I don't want to spend too long on the referees here because, um, it is what it is. It was terrible. It was really bizarre. I, I, it made me question what I understood about the game and about, mm. um, there's a good snore from uh, your little dog. From Bell, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, Just in case anyone thinks I was like, you know, one of us farting or something like that. That was definitely your (laughs) dog.
2: What's good is we can fart and it it will pass as a snore. Yeah. Uh, That's the real bonus. Okay.
1: Action stations. Why do you think she's (laughs) in here? Um, Um, But what I was saying was like, you know, just some of the decisions made no sense on any uh, logical level to me based on how I understand the rules of the game.
2: What's so weird is that other noise you just heard was Siri inexplicably talking on my iPhone and it said, I'm not sure I understand. So maybe it was, has been watching replays of the referees as we have been speaking. Uh, yeah, it, it, I mean, for, for context and for balance, I do think that we've had a decent run of decisions in the last few games. I'm sure people will take issue with that. But I think if you look back over the last half dozen games or so, mm. we've done all right with referees and so maybe that made it feel almost more shocking to be like oh suddenly we're not getting stuff but as you know I'm not someone who invests enormously in the officiating or who sort of you know gets too aggravated by it but I did think that yesterday there were just decisions that I was really surprised about. And again, it wasn't one or two. It was sort of a consistent trend across the game, um, which is what made it particularly remarkable. Even so, you know, despite that, Arsenal should have made more of their first half performance. And there was another chance right before... Half time for Jesus. Do you remember the uh, Odegaard flick over the top for the ball? Oh,
1: I mean, it's a, such a brilliant pass from, from Martin Odegaard. It's <laughs> such a great yeah. goal. Um, Jesus shot straight at the keeper. And look, this is where we had the opportunity to make the the referee irrelevant because, yeah. you know, 2 0 at half time, I think we go on and win the game from there. And that's a chance that we, we should have taken. Can I ask you very quickly before we move on to the second half, the Ben White. Incident right at the end of the half.
2: Remind me. Remind me.
1: He's know, l- it. literally pushed over in the oh, box. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, that was sur- surreal. And and I, as if if I recall correctly, television didn't even show a replay of it.
1: They didn't. Maybe you know, if you're again, I don't want to go into conspiracies either. You know, but it was right at the end of the half, so maybe they they don't show that. But I was yeah. I was a little bit surprised by. How little conversation there was about that, because basically the guy, it's its a bit soft, but the guy puts two hands in his back and pushes him over in the penalty box. Like, you know, if, 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 big if, you know, Granit Xhaka had done that at, at our end, I would suggest that the amount of people who are saying, ah, oh, that's too soft of a penalty, you can't give that, because of some history with Granit Xhaka would have said, well, Xhaka was stupid to give the referee that decision to make you know that kind of way Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. i think southampton got a bit lucky there i i I think that's a penalty as well
2: yeah i i well as i as i say i've literally only seen it once but in real time i thought that's got a very good chance um and i thought even if he doesn't give it in the moment Mm. it might well go to var but alas it did not
1: it did not second half we were not quite at the races not quite with the same level of intensity and and we didn't make chances uh, the way that we had there was a uh, element of sloppiness you remember the yeah the saliba
2: saliba sloppy giveaway yeah. and, and i do think that unfortunately moments like that can set a bit of a tone can't they um
1: yeah just give the opposition doesn't a, have
2: to but it seemed to in this half nevertheless nevertheless
1: um we had a brilliant chance again to make it 2-0. Yeah. Um, I mean, great work from Gabriel Jesus to win the ball back and then make the run forward. Fantastic pass from Martin Odegaard. I don't think the pass could have been any better. Maybe really a up, huh? slightly touch heavier, maybe, but I don't think you can argue with the pass. The issue is the second touch from Gabriel Jesus where he just sort of leaves it behind him very slightly yeah um and thus that allows the the uh the defender to get back i'm just watching it it's again not here. on his
2: strong side i guess you know but yeah it's it's a yeah. great chance i mean I, listen look i make little notes on my iphone through the game this is what i've written for that 59 minutes Jezus in El-Yanusi tackles but should have killed it really yeah. Big, big moment, question mark. So far, his misses haven't hurt us. Maybe this is that day. Yeah,
1: Actually, the first touch isn't brilliant either. I think with that, his first touch goes inside and he tries to go then outside with his second touch. I think he should go outside with his first touch and just commit to his left foot. I don't think the defender gets there because he doesn't have to take the poor second touch then. So... Not great from Gabriel Jesus in front of goal yesterday. Um, And we've got questions about that. So we'll deal with that more in in part two.
2: Southampton did things better as well. Like I spoke about Thomas Partey in the first half and Mm. they really worked to cut that off in the second half. You know, they pressed a lot higher and they closed him down quicker, um, which gave us problems in build-up again. I think that's where you miss someone like Zinchenko just because he gives you like another outlet. Yeah. yeah, and, and again, the physicality on Jesus continued and continued. I mean, just more absurd examples of things not being given a free kick. And every decision that went Southampton's favour emboldened them to be more and more physical. No, I um, agree.
1: There was one maybe probably about 90 seconds before before their goal, Yeah, which was, I just, I've got no, I'm looking at it again here. It is absolutely ridiculous that we don't get a free kick. Yeah. He's basically got two arms. It's a long ball from Ramsdale. Here it goes. Jesus, now he's got two arms around him, pulls him over, making no attempt to play the ball. He's playing the man the whole time. And that should be a free kick to Arsenal, you know, four or five yards outside the Southampton box. We don't get yep. that. Now, to be fair, the ball goes out for an Arsenal throw. There's another passage of play, etc., etc. But, you know, small moments like that, like you say... They were emboldened to make those kind of challenges, knowing that they weren't going to be penalised. The momentum of the game changes a little bit when you when you can do that. You know, from that free kick, we've got a couple of players who are pretty decent from um, from set pieces. You know, I'm not saying you're going to score from there every time or anything like it, but it just might give you a little more control. But from there, Southampton uh, get the ball back. I think a Martinelli shot. Or cross, you know, deflects into the arms of the goalkeeper, and they work it up the pitch. What what do you think of this goal? Because I think if we'd scored it, we'd be saying that's a very nice goal.
2: There's a brilliant dummy uh, on the halfway line. Yeah, takes Saliba, Partey, and Saliba out the game, Um, and that creates a bit of an overload for them. I mean, it is a well worked goal. Like it, you know. yeah, fair play. I'm, I'm watching it again. I mean, it's, a, you know, there's always things you could look at from an Arsenal perspective. Sure. For example, you know, does Saliba need to commit as high as he does? And, he's, he, you know, he's beaten by that dummy. That leaves the line a bit ragged, and we're sort of always struggling from that point on. But, yeah, if those are red and white shirts, well, they are red and white shirts. But if the <laughs> if 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 yeah. pattern is different of the red and white shirts, um, we're probably eulogising about that as a move, Um but it was kind of I, – I have been slightly surprised by some of the commentary about the game since. You know, Hassan Huttle came out and said we had Arsenal on the ropes. No, 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 no I, no. I think that's a massive exaggeration. I mean, I don't remember Aaron Ramsdale really making a save. There was you know one I
1: mean? There was one from Rebo about five minutes after they scored the goal where I think they'd had a corner and then they, they got a bit of an overlap um they had like a uh, 2 on 1 or 3 on 1 yes. in that pocket of the box and Arebo had a shot Ramsdale saved but beyond that like they had a little bit of momentum after they score a goal you know there's always that that period isn't there when a team a home team scores and the crowd are up and it feels maybe a bit more dangerous than it actually is but they didn't
2: really do a great deal you know no, there was one ball to the back post, <clears throat> which maybe they should have done better with. I don't know if you remember that, where they, they dropped one in from the left wing and like they didn't quite get there. Oh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was a, li- a little half chance. Um, but no, I, 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 I honestly think that move they put together was really their only good, gr- very good attacking move of the game. They scored from it, fair play. Um, and then it was a question of, you know, what could Arsenal do to reassert themselves? Because, mm. yeah, the intensity hadn't been there. And I think what was really sort of quite startling about the last 20 minutes or so was how sloppy Arsenal got. I mean, I spoke about how brilliant Partey was in the first half, but in the second, I remember a couple of loose touches and passes that were sort of well below what you would expect of him, and to be fair to him, I, I don't think he was the only one. I think, as Arsenal sort of went to chase the game, maybe it was the increased urgency, but they they lost a bit of their composure. I think in that last twenty minutes, I,
1: I think that final twenty minutes for me, anyway, is the worst we played this season. I include Leeds in that. So Simpl- uh, really? Yeah, simply because I think you know we're we're capable of much better, and it was not as if. We were fighting against the tide the way we were against Leeds. You know, that way, like the whole of the second half, we, we couldn't get into the game at all. The problem in this instance, I think, was that when we had the ball and we had plenty of it, we didn't do anywhere near enough with it. Or what we did wasn't good enough. Like I said, Arteta said the simple thing. So, you know, it's players getting caught in possession. It's, yeah. it's you know, getting, um, you know... Tackled from behind, you know, being unaware that there's a man coming, misplaced passes, wrong decisions. You know, I think that was as sloppy as I've seen us this, this season uh, in, in that final 20 minutes. And, you know, this is where I don't really buy into the fatigue argument or, or uh, that sort of analysis because Thomas Partey didn't play in midweek. You know, he didn't. You know, he didn't play ninety minutes against PSV or anything like that. He's coming into this game completely fresh, so he should be more than capable of of maintaining his level for for ninety minutes. And I don't think it was fatigue. I don't think it was tiredness. I think, you know, sometimes a game just gets away from you a little bit, and that sloppiness starts to to um, to creep in. Whether it's a, a sort of collective anxiety or whatever it is, I don't know. But we were certainly capable of doing a lot better. Um, Yeah, I I, I
2: actually am inclined to agree. Sorry for that to be quite boring for the (laughs) listeners, but I think the fatigue thing, you know, it's something you say after the game and it makes sense because you look at the schedule, but I'm not sure I ascribe the the sort of negative elements of this performance to that entirely. I, I really, really strongly feel that. Arsenal's biggest issue was not capitalising on the period of the game where they were completely dominant. If you go away in the Premier League, I'd say nine times out of ten, at some point the home side is going to have a spell or produce something. And that's just a reality. Yeah, What you have to do is really, really you know, turn the screw in the periods where you're on top. And Arsenal didn't do that in terms of the scoreline. And I, and I think that was the the, the main issue. I, I don't believe that the players playing on Thursday was the reason that they were misplacing passes at the end. I no. honestly think it was something slightly different. So yeah. don't get me wrong, fatigue's a factor and it will continue to be one, but I'm not sure it was the defining factor.
1: No, no, I don't so. think so. I think missed chances, missed opportunities, not capitalising on the on the chances we created when you... When you you know you think about the opportunities we had versus what Southampton had, it's clear there was one team who had really really good chances to win the game, regardless yeah. of the referee regardless of of fatigue or whatever else or the schedule we had the chances to win the game we, we didn't take those no. um you know a few bits from the from the last few minutes the subs came on Eddie and Keddie on the left do you Or would you like to see in those circumstances, like I I get he wants to get two strikers on the pitch, but would you like to see maybe Gabriel Jesus move a little to the wide area and Eddie more central in a situation like this?
2: Yeah, I mean, I thought Arteta gave a really good answer about this on Thursday, was it, when he was asked... um... Maybe it wasn't Thursday. It was after one of the Europa games where he'd played Eddie on the left. And he basically said, well, it means I'm making one change rather than two. Um, and, I, and I thought that was a very logical response. But I tend to think, yes, that Eddie would fare better in the middle and Gabriel Jesus would fare better mm. on the left. I mean, they seem more suited to those positions. I, You know, Martinelli... Had been a real threat in the game and he hadn't always made the right final decision, but he'd been a menace and that fullback had really struggled on that side. Eddie's just such a different type of player and he's done okay on the left, but yeah, if it, were, if it was Michael, mm. I probably would have swapped them. Yeah.
1: The substitutes didn't really make a great difference. Apart from, I think, Kieran Tierney, who gave us that, that overlap we were talking about a yeah, bit earlier on. Yeah,
2: nearly created a goal. The ball just tripled out of play, didn't you know, it, before he yeah,
1: it, Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of moments where I, I think there was a challenge on him there, where potentially he oh, could have gone post. down. Well, yeah. no, 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 no. Before, oh. before the ball goes out, there's a challenge comes in from the defender, which I think you know, potentially he could have gone down, but then he probably thought, well, this referee is not going to give us anything anyway.
2: Well, exactly.
1: And then yeah. the, the one at the far post, I, again, I'm really curious as to why we haven't seen any kind of replay of this. You can hear like, you can hear a, a very definite slap sound on the commentary. There's a slap. And then Tierney lets out a yelp and he goes down holding his face slash neck. And, I mean, I, I mean, it's hard not to think those two things are related, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree too, and he did well when he came on, and uh, yeah, I, th- I think, I, I again, I would love to see that one again, but much like Ben White, it was brushed under the television carpet. So yeah, um, who knows? But yeah, I mean, he he did well, and he provided an overlap, and I, I thought he was energetic, uh, but but to be honest. I never really thought Arsenal looked like nicking it. It was quite um, a chaotic final period. Yeah. And, and, and and as I say, I think I, I, in the back of my mind also was, you know, I don't want Arsenal to go crazy here and chuck this one away. Because I just think to lose from the position they were in would have been incredibly damaging. And, I, you know, as disappointing as it was to drop the two points... I know you can kind of see this either way, depending on how full your glass is. But the the context, the wider context of the other results in the Premier League meant this point was not quite as painful as it might have been.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, it comes back to what I said at the start, is that we have raised the standards and raised the levels and raised the expectations of what this team is capable of and what it should be able to do against, with all due respect, a, a side like Southampton, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we did mm-hmm. it against Crystal Palace where we had this bogey ground and we started the season there and 1-2-0. Everyone and their fucking mother went on and on and on about, about Brentford and what happened on the Friday night of la- uh, the start of last season. You couldn't fucking move for people talking about that. And we went there and we beat them comfortably. So I think when we considered those results and those contexts... Southampton was another one where you thought, you know what, we kind of owe the we owe them one. You know, they've beaten us a few times. Um this is another game where we can show that we've got the we've got what it takes, you know? So I think that that adds to the disappointment overall though. You know, a 1-1 draw away from home in the Premier League in the course of a season, you know, is is not a bad result. I think Based on the chances we had, you could say, okay, it's a bad result because we should have won the game and all that kind of stuff. But standing back a bit and with a bit of daylight, a bit of distance, I don't think a 1-1 draw away from home in the league is is a bad result per se. And like you say, the other results in the Premier League were pretty favorable. There's an inevitability about Manchester City doing what Manchester City do, right? Sure. But elsewhere, Spurs got beaten. Liverpool, yeah. even though they're some way back, they got beaten. Manchester no, that's United. Really,
2: that's significant, yeah. yeah. Manchester not United Manchester, and
1: Chelsea, uh, you know, drew. So they both, they both um, dropped points. So in the context of the entire weekend, while I'm as frustrated as anyone else that we couldn't get it over the line, I think, you know, it's it's not bad in the grand scheme of things. Um, and maybe, you know, to to have done to have come away from Ellen Road with three points after not playing particularly well, and to come away from St. Mary's with a point, having played pretty well, but not that well in the second half, you know, that's four points from two games where maybe we haven't been at our best, which isn't, yeah. a, it isn't a bad return. And I think one of the interesting things for me anyway about this season is like, how do we, how do we react? How do we cope when, you know, it becomes a little more difficult? where the confidence isn't quite at 100%, where the passes don't quite go. Like, how do we pull ourselves back out of that? And I think that's where we are. And to be there with four points from two games when we haven't played as well as we can, you know, I, I still see that as as a kind of progress.
2: Oh, yeah, I do too. And I think four points from these two games is probably more than fair. <laughs> I think it's a very decent return, Um especially given, you know, the way the games went. I, I think Southampton, honestly, were really... Lucky feels a bit harsh, but but I think that, you know, a draw was the most they could have got, possibly. Like, if you played this game and it played out 10 more times like this, you know, I think Arsenal probably win seven or eight of them. Yeah, um, We didn't quite get the breaks in terms of the finishing and the refereeing decisions, but I suppose I'd rather be talking about a match like that where than a game where just Arsenal haven't performed at all. And and I do think it will be lost slightly, but the some of the football Arsenal played in the first half was really, really good, I do think.
1: I agree. I agree. And and the the the, the thing we have to do is just focus on being more efficient in the final third and, and taking those chances and, and making sure that when we do create those opportunities, whatever the referee does whatever the opposition do is is sort of not relevant to the discussion. Like we could be laughing about the referee this morning. Well, I don't know if we'd be laughing about it, but you know what I mean? It would be a very, it would be a sidebar. Whereas I think because of what went on in the game, it became more, more important, you know, um, yeah. and, and what we can control and what we can control. We can never control the referees. We can control what we do with the, with the chances we have.
2: I think it's essentially it's very difficult to win away from home scoring only one goal. It's as simple as that. You know, Arsenal have kept a number of clean sheets on the road this season. It's really impressive. I think they'd had maybe four consecutive away from home. But you can't do that all the time. I mean, you know, the the home team is going to score. So if you want to go away in the Premier League and win you need to be sticking two or three away. And that second goal would have killed the game whenever it came, I think, to be honest. Had it been in the first half, Arsenal would have been in quite a comfortable controlling position had it been in the second half. I think the same thing would have happened. So a real shame that we didn't get it. But Mm. um, we move on. And, you know, uh, after two Premier League games on the road the prospect of a home fixture against Nottingham Forest, albeit a team who will be on a high, having just beaten Liverpool, looks pretty appealing, you know, to be able to come back to the Emirates in the Premier League and the atmosphere there. Yeah, You know, I I feel pretty confident going into that one that Arsenal can get three points. And Mm. uh, I, I think everything will feel better after the next win, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think so. And look, we have to acknowledge it has been a bit of a a bit of a a tricky away run you know when you consider the trip to Norway trip to Leeds trip to Southampton there's a home game against PSV in the middle of it but um yeah back home in the Premier League I think is is going to be important for us and hopefully we can we can put things right in the next game so
2: Mm -hmm.
1: all right will we take a break let's do it let's Let's take a break break. Uh, plenty of questions so we'll come back and do those in part two right after this Welcome back to the Arse Cast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at Gunnarblog and at Arse Blog, and also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. I'm going to go first, James, and from the Discord comes a question that many people have asked as well uh, on Twitter. Um, so I'll pick this one from San Carico, And he said, Hi, chaps. Irrespective of the obvious shite refereeing and how Gabriel Jesus was manhandled for no penalty, are you a little bit concerned about his shot-to-goal conversion ratio over the last few weeks? Or does his work rate make up for it in what he contributes to the team? I mean, he's great, and I love him as a player, but should he not be taking a few more chances away?
2: Well, I think this is kind of who he's always been, um and his conversion rate at man city was never fantastic you know it was fine but it wasn't you know mm. uh, elite as the kids might say um and it's one of those where that is slightly obviously there's room for improvement and he may well improve in that respect but it is slightly the trade off you make with him uh but I think you also have to question, you know, how many chances that he gets are a consequence of his other qualities. You know, I heard a debate about Ronaldo. You know, there's so much debate about Ronaldo in Manchester United. And I heard a couple of pundits sort of having it out on Sky the other day. And, you know, everyone was saying, oh, you know, he takes his chances. When the ball comes to him, he takes his chances. And then somebody else pointed out, yeah, but when he plays, they don't create chances and i kind of feel like Jesus is sort of the inverse you know he he contributes this very fluid mobile attack that's difficult to defend against but he's slightly less efficient in front of goal um and that's ultimately the path arsenal have chosen to take so i'm not concerned about it because i sort of expected it um but you know you know i i, I hope he can improve in front of goal because there have been chances in the last few games and as I said earlier in part one, it sort of hasn't cost us until this point. We've sort of managed to mm. get by. I think yesterday's probably the first day that you would look at it and think, oh, if he'd only done better, it was the difference between one point and three. We haven't really been in that position yet. Um yeah. what what do you make of him in front of goal?
1: I mean I think that's what you say there is very fair about um Mrs costing us and what have you I look I I know what you're saying about the the efficiency in front of goal you know Manchester City but I do think part of the reason why he was brought to Arsenal was because they felt he could do better you know if you play him at number nine you give him more chances and he will score more goals and should score more goals like my gut feeling on him is that he's still a huge positive to this team and that that chance in the second half was created by a brilliant Odegaard pass but as i mentioned it was him working back and winning the ball in midfield allowing Odegaard to make that pass and then having the ability to you know make the run towards the the penalty box you know that's something that we've been missing i mean, i think he should do a lot better there but he is contributing in, in that sense i i mean I think he's maybe two or three goals light of where he should be based on the chances he's had.
2: I think that's fair. And I I also
1: don't think he's quite 100%. I don't think he's been quite 100% since the Liverpool game. Now, I could be putting two and two together and coming up at five here, you know? Mm. Um, Because maybe... Maybe that just sounds like making an excuse for him or something like that. But um,
2: and, and who knows? Yeah. It's possible. Yeah, possible.
1: I mean, you don't. Maybe you don't get the chances that he got yesterday. If you're ninety nine percent, maybe you only get those if you're a hundred percent. And he just had a bad day in front of goal. It, it could be that.
2: Um, so I'm not. I, I think he, you're right. I think he, he probably. And I, I bet the XG bears this out. He should probably have a couple more than he's got. Um, and. I think he'll feel that, to be honest. I mean, Mikel Arteta said after the game, he'll be incredibly disappointed. But then, you know, we have to remember that, you know, last season we played the majority of the season with a striker who some games didn't even have a shot. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's definitely a step forward to have a guy who has the intelligence, the athleticism to get into these goal-scoring positions. Um, But equally, I don't think it's unreasonable to hope for him to do Slightly better when he gets there.
1: Yeah, that's fair enough. I'm just going to look this season. I'm just looking up what his uh, XG is. Uh, boom, boom, boom. Uh, total XG 7.35. Yeah. And he's got, he got what? Five? Is yeah. It? So, so he's, so, you know. He is a couple under where he should be.
2: Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think to be fair, that's been a bit of a trend across his career. So it may be the case that, you know, that is, like I say, a trade off that you that you take when you sign Gabriel Jesus but and and, you know he's transformed the team I don't think anyone's disputing that and the other thing to say is that all the great strikers in the world miss chances you know it's part of it it's part of the game and it's about you know can you create enough that those averages kind of work in your favour but yeah yesterday i felt he could have done a bit better and there were some you know obviously there was that one he's played one-on-one but there are a couple of others where you thought oh if he could just get the shot away or if he could you know if this touch hadn't taken him a bit wide then it would have been better mm. for him i just thought in the, the the sharpness that we saw in the penalty box in pre-season and the first few games of the season uh isn't quite there right now and maybe that's form maybe that's fitness maybe he's not quite himself as you suggest but yeah, there's been a little dip in front of goal.
1: I, down. I, I saw a few questions as well from people asking, you know, should should Eddie get a start at centre-forward? I mean, I don't think I'm ready for that, to be honest. I, I think what Jesus brings to the team overall is is really positive. Um, yeah. You know, I think he'd be the first to tell you that his, um, you know, that his finishing wasn't up to scratch yesterday. And I think Mikel Arteta referenced it as well. Like he said something about... You know, if he scores two goals when he should have had four, he's he's going to be unhappy. So he's going to be really unhappy about a game like yesterday. So it's about how he responds next time out. And, um, you know, maybe next week we're talking about uh, a Gabriel Jesus in front of goal that has put Nottingham Forest to the sword. Fingers crossed.
2: Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> um, question here from Phil Costa, who says, do Arsenal need a plan B We've been great this season, but our starting 11 patterns of play and substitutes, which are mostly like-for-like, don't offer much tactical or physical variety. Roles of Partey, Shaka, Jesus, and even White feel specific and tough to replicate. Plan B
1: just sort of makes me immediately think of get a big lad up front and hoof the ball at him. Yeah, and I don't mean to say that's what Phil is suggesting. It's just what I I think of when I hear that, and I think it's what most people think of when they hear like a plan B.
2: I mean, I don't hate it as a suggestion. To no, no,
1: no. I don't. I don't either. I don't hate that as an no. idea, but I just wonder. Like, was yesterday about not having a plan B? Maybe in the second half it was. In the first half, it, it, it certainly wasn't. I think. I suspect we're missing Emil Smith Rowe more than people have considered. You know, he got a he got quite a few goals off the bench last season. And Four in a
2: row at one point, wasn't it?
1: Yeah. And like if you asked me yesterday in that second half, like everyone's fit, right? Everyone's available, everyone's on the bench. What is my ideal change? from an attacking perspective, you know, maybe it's not my ideal because I thought Martinelli was good, but maybe was feeling the effects of that illness a little bit. He drifted away in the second half a bit. But if you ask me if I want to put on uh, FitzSmith Smith-Rowe ahead of Martinelli instead of Eddie Nketiah, it's going to be a, a FitzSmith Smith-Rowe, you know? And I do think maybe th- just that little lack of variety in the wide positions might be part of why it does feel a little bit stale or did feel a little bit stale yesterday because... Eddie's not a wide player. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't really have anyone to come on for Bukayo Saka or to sort of mix things around the way that we, we might like. So I don't think it's a question so much of plan B as more a question of of depth and, and going back to what Mikel Arteta said before the end of the the transfer window, more firepower. And I think that's probably what we're missing. I mean, that could also be a plan B. You know, that that's fair enough. But um, I, I don't expect, even if we... Uh, had everyone fit or whatever. I, I don't know that a like a big bean pole striker is, is gonna be on the shopping list and that in the last ten minutes of games we just resort to hoofing it. I don't think that's the way Mikel Arteta wants to play. I mean, there may be times where desperate times call for desperate measures and you you bang Gabrielle up front or whatever, but I don't necessarily see it as the manager's um I don't see it as credible in the manager's eyes anyway, based on h- how he wants to play the game.
2: Yeah, I, I think you make a really good point about missing a, a wide attacker like Emil Smith-Rowe. I mean, I reckon if you look across the Premier League, which players in teams get subbed off the most, it's probably wingers, I, I would imagine, because it's a very physically demanding role and it's one where freshness in the last 20 minutes of games against a tired fullback can be absolutely yeah. valuable. And I do wonder if maybe that's something we missed in the discussion about Eddie or Jesus on the left. Maybe that is part of Mikel's thinking when he's bringing him on is, you know, I've got a knackered Gabriel Jesus. Do I want to go and ask him to spend 20 minutes running in behind a fullback, Or do I want someone who's completely fresh in
1: that yeah, area yeah, of yeah. pitch?
2: Um, but I do think having like someone who is really well-suited to that position is something Arsenal miss and you know could provide a bit of a plan B. I mean, even... You know, I've got no regrets about letting Nicola Pepe leave the club, but somebody like that, you know, who was maybe more suited to Arteta's mm. demands and system, um, or indeed Smith Rowe, would be really, really useful. Um, I also think there was kind of a plan B that we used in pre-season and utilised in some early games in the season, where Eddie would come on, and we'd switch to kind of a three-five-two. Um, which we haven't seen, I think, for a few weeks now, uh, which surprises me slightly because it was genuinely two up top um, uh, with, you know, wing-backs. I remember and Martinelli doing jobs as wing-backs and and Party just Mm. in behind. I I think Arsenal sacrificed, like, some stability with that, but just having the two central strikers can create a real problem for the opposition. So I wouldn't be adverse to seeing a bit more of that. It seemed like something that we had worked on and would see a fair bit. But actually, it's kind of regressed a little bit as the season's worn off.
1: Yeah. Um, January will be important, I think. Oh, and, and that is usually. that is maybe a discussion for another day because we've still got plenty to do before, before January. Okay, here's one from Jack Abella, who's at Jack G. Abella. He said, OK, Lee morning. So I guess it is. It's okay. Yeah. Um, he said, are you guys concerned about Fabio Vieira's cameos? I think he looks very weak, bullied off the ball far too easily, and doesn't show. seem to show it in possession. I was at the PSV game on Thursday, and he was average at best then too. Is it just a
2: slow start? Interesting one, isn't it? I mean, again, I think, I think lack of options or the sort of slight... Uh, shallowness of the squad in certain attacking areas probably is a factor in some of his him getting quite as many minutes as he is. Like mm. I remember when we were playing Liverpool, and maybe it was two uh, two, and Fabio Vieira was stripping off, preparing to come on just before Arsenal got the goal that would ultimately win it. And even yesterday, when I sort of looked, and he was ready to come on on the sidelines and I think the same at Ellen Road actually almost on every occasion I've sort of just raised an eyebrow just like is this the time for a young player who's adapting to the Premier League but then I guess when you look at the rest of the bench is what how much choice does Mikel Arteta have about that um you know, I, I do think maybe in an ideal world, some of these fixtures wouldn't be the ones where you'd be blooding Vieira and asking him to come on in a finely poised physical game with 20 minutes to go. But I just, if you think, well, Odegaard looks a bit tired or Saka looks a bit tired, what else have you got? Yeah, I mean, that's true. I, th- I thought he was, for a player
1: who's as technically good as he is, I thought he was really poor yesterday and and that, Seven or eight minutes that he was on the pitch were not his not his best. It's it's fair to say, and I, it's no. very hard to explain why that would happen with a player who you know is only coming on. He should be fresh. He's warmed up. He he can come on and just flit around the pitch and and give you a bit of perhaps a bit of momentum. Whereas I think he was guilty of getting called on the ball a couple of times and a couple of passes that didn't go astray. But I think in general it's it's maybe just a slow start and and. He is certainly capable. We've seen that. We saw him play um very well against Brentford away from home yeah. when Martin Odegaard wasn't there. Um I think myself and Clive had a, a discussion about him a bit on the on the ArsCast on Friday as well, which sort of goes into a bit more depth. Um, you know, it might just take him a bit of time to, to settle in and, and feel comfortable. Um but he wasn't good yesterday and unfortunately he kind of is the only attacking option we have um, besides Eddie, besides Eddie? That, I mean, it. there's Reese Nelson, and there is Marquinhos, but I, yeah, there are some question marks over both of those for, for different reasons, various reasons. But um, yeah, it's it's not a it's not a deep bench from an from an attacking perspective. So no
2: and and, and uh, listen I'm a big believer in Vieira's talent and we've seen some flashes of it already. I agree he struggled when he came on yesterday but he certainly wasn't the only one who struggled in that end period of the game. Um having been fresh, you know, you you'd like to think he'd do better there but uh yeah, it I do I do think that he's probably coming on in situations where if Arteta had another option maybe he wouldn't go for Vieira at mm. this particular point in time, but he doesn't really have that many options. And I think that's sort of a fascinating part of, you know, the big discussions about rotation and resting players, but it is a relatively small pool that he's working with. Um, and I, I think that has to be remembered, you know?
1: Yeah. Um, there was another question just as a follow-up to that um, yeah. from Discord, from Robbie S., He says, mediocrely morning, chaps. We've had okayly, mediocrely. Um, He said, it feels like we're not seeing Martin Odegaard complete 90 minutes very often. What do you think is going on there?
2: Don't think. uh, That's an interesting question, actually. Trying to think back to last season, how often he completed 90 minutes. I feel like he did fairly regularly, but um, I might be wrong about that. Um, Shall I have a look? Feels like something I should look at, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, we can we can look that up. I mean, I do wonder if you know there is an element of of uh, trying to manage minutes in players.
2: Yeah. Um, we also don't know, like you know, you're speculating about Jesus and what sort of condition he's in. You never know what a player is carrying at any point in time, and mm. and more often than not. There are players who have complaints. You know, I've got a slight strain here. I've got a bruise in here. I've got, you know, a bit of pain in this joint. And we never even hear about it because it's just managed. Yeah. And I think there's every chance he could be in that position. I mean, towards the end of last season, yeah, he played 90 minutes one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine consecutive games at the end of last season. So the manager is not adverse to leaving him on for the whole game. But, you know, he has had some Europa League involvement as well to contend with. And it may just be a question of, as you say, managing the load on these players through this period.
1: I mean, the last time he did 90 minutes in the Premier League was against Fulham on August 27th. Yeah. Um, But, you know, he did play 90 minutes for... Norway against Serbia during the last international break. Uh, he did have a bit of an injury, if you remember. He wasn't in the squad for Brentford. Um, I mean, yeah, that's right, he's yeah. done 80 minutes, 82, 73, 83. You know, so he's getting there or thereabouts, but I think it might well be a case that um, there there's something there that they're protecting because I think even on a day like yesterday, like you leave a fully fit Martin Odegaard on
2: ahead of Fabio Vieira right now. Mm. I, I'll tell you something interesting. Um, Norway aren't in the World Cup, are they? No. I'm all right about that. Yeah, no. Like, I, I, this is a complete sort of side note, but I was reading, as I do, the fans of some uh, the some Tottenham fans and United fans and Chelsea fans, and something they are all seem to be talking about is this idea of, Players physically protecting themselves before the World Cup, and it just struck me as something that I haven't thought about at all with regards to Arsenal. And I, 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 to be honest, I don't think it's happening. Like I, I, I wonder if it's just sort of an analysis by some opposition fans to kind of explain poor performances and poor results. Because when I look at this Arsenal team, I don't and there's you know there's a dozen people with a chance of going to the World Cup. I don't really see any of them holding back.
1: Um, No, that's true.
2: And I think that tells you something about, you know, the commitment and focus level of the squad, because I know fans of other clubs, it's a topic that they're chatting about. Um, Yeah, the Odegaard thing, I mean, yeah, I I think it's just a consequence of trying to manage minutes across the squad through Mm. a pretty, pretty treacherous period. or, Or, you know, there may be something underlying as well that we don't know about. I mean, I thought, it's interesting, you know. He has games where he dominates the whole game, and you know, it's all he's the conductor, and everything goes to his beat. And then he has games where he's less involved, but he still makes two or three brilliant passes that really could and perhaps should result in a goal. Yeah. I mean, we spoke about the little flick over the top for the Jesus volley, or or playing uh, Jesus in, you know, for that chance. Uh, in the second half. You think back to, I think, something that wasn't talked about enough in the Leeds game. There was that chance for Jesus um where he's put it over the bar, but the flick from Odegaard to set him up was so intelligent, mm. so deft. You know, I, I, it, even in games where he's not involved minute to minute, he produces several moments of match-winning quality, I
1: think. Yeah, I mean, the, there was a, a fair bit of discussion about the the chance that he missed early in the game that he put yeah. wide, which I think he should put on target. You know, uh, if he'd hit that ball the way he hit the ball for the one that was disallowed, mm-hmm. or if he hit the the ball the way he hit it for the goal at Brentford, if you remember, um, he absolutely smashed that in. So I'd like to see a bit more of that, but on the yeah. basis of like, what, what, what is he in the team for? Okay. Score goals. When you get in position, score a goal, but he's also there to, to be basically the creative hub, of this team and to make chances he made four chances yesterday four key passes two of them I think should be goals for Gabriel Jesus so on that basis you know he did his job you know a creative player uh, ultimately his assist stats are only as good as the finishes that are applied at the end of those passes you know Um, so I'm not necessarily worried about Martin Odegaard or or his form or anything like that but um, yeah we'll, we'll have to see how it plays out
2: I see I see. Kevin De Bruyne is running away with the uh, assist chart. And it's like, obviously, he's a fantastic player in his own right, but it doesn't hurt the bloke he's got in front of him. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, give him the ball, uh, he get yourself an assist. But I think Alex Awobi might be second, you know, five assists this season. He's ha- he's, he's having a fantastic he season. He
1: sure is. What a, what, a great, uh, what a great assist that was for, I think, Everton's third goal.
2: Yeah, really nice. <sighs> Little back heel playing very well I'm pleased to see it to be
1: honest yes me too me too uh, until is it we my... play them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. is it my question or your question oh by the uh, way yeah. I remember I mentioned at the start I actually had a couple of these we've got a sadly morning from Ewan McFarlane is that you and Mace wow. Ewan, uh, 237 on tour he said sadly morning guys
2: along guys, with it, it can't be a sadly <laughs> morning we've it's... got to have leave ourselves somewhere we, to. Go. we are
1: top yeah. of the league still yeah. just so you know uh, but again that, that tells you he said along with rediscovery of our. Identity, Uh, of our identity as a club comes the unfortunate side effect of being overly invested emotionally in the outcome of each game any tips on how to healthily digest the frustration and disappointment tequila perhaps and the other one was from Fred who's at RLF uh, 86 he said Arteta has made me care again but is this a curse that draw with Southampton felt like a loss is this what it means to believe I think it is. Uh, We're just gonna have to it, get used to it, guys. Yeah, I think it is. High stakes mean that every everything is is um it just feels more real or, or important or whatever.
2: Yeah. And you go into a game with high expectations and But you know, you found the perfect cure because you watched the Spurs game immediately afterwards, right? I did. I was you know, you know me. Uh, I don't
1: normally um have any time for them or, or spend any time watching them. But it was, you know, I was on sky sports. I was working, I was doing stuff for, for the site and it was on, it started and I just sort of left it on. And then of course, when Newcastle went one nil up and then two nil up, I was like, okay, I'll watch the rest of this. So, uh, yeah, a good day, a good day for, for seeing Spurs lose mixed emotions about what, what, what Newcastle are doing though, because, um, mm-hmm you know, that whole thing is another shit show of
2: I, I potentially epic them, proportions. Yeah, and I have to be completely honest and say I didn't expect them to be playing this effectively, this quickly. Um so I know I know they've spent a lot of money, but uh and they don't have the distraction of Europe, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um but yeah, they they've got themselves in the running for those European places on their early showing, which Did- is
1: Worrying, but the important thing, of course, is that that Tottenham lost, first and foremost.
2: Yeah, exactly. That's the the nice heartwarming thing. Is it my – no, it's your question. Uh, I'll have a question. So I thought this was interesting. It's from Tom, who's at Tom underscore Morissette on Twitter. Tom says, morning, gents. On Saka's book of simulation, what are your thoughts on there still being no rule in place which could see yellow cards overturned by VAR or challenged beyond the full-time whistle? Um, I mean, I think that's one of those where,
1: like, is, is it, I mean, okay, I think it is so wrong that it could be overturned, um, via some kind of an appeals system. Yeah. But I just wonder about the, the logistics of that, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I really feel like at least with video and I've said this for a long time that the things, some sort of retroactive punishment of things that are missed in the game is, is possible with video, right? Um, I mean, I don't think Saka's yellow card should stand. You mentioned Douglas Louise Mm. and his, that was rescinded, wasn't it? His red card was rescinded for all the, the good that it did. Aston Villa, during the week, not that I care about that, you know. Um, I don't know. I it, it, it That's a very snorry dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: I, she's not stressed about that. No, deal. she's she not worried at relax. all.
1: Yeah, snorly morning uh, for Bell, right there. Um, I I don't know whether it would just be another level of administration or just another thing that the refereeing uh, authorities could get wrong. You know, okay, you got that decision wrong, we'll appeal it. No, we're going to uphold that. Now everyone's mental again about it. I don't know
2: whether it would be good or not. It just invites, yeah, I mean, already the dialogue around officials and decisions is so uh, pervasive. You know, if you start, if everything is open to challenge, does it just become nonstop noise? Um, I don't know, but then equally I see the point of it does seem kind of absurd that you can review a red but not a yellow card, because a yellow card, okay, maybe it doesn't particularly cost you on the day, but if that player goes on to get five bookings or ten bookings in a season, you're losing them for three matches. So, yeah, um, yeah, I I think, and I agree with you, in reality, if that was reviewed, that Saka yellow, I probably don't think it's, sufficiently I I, I imagine they'd stick with the referee's opinion effectively um in order to partly protect the official and uh, various other things but I guess there should be a mechanism for that um as much as it would bore me having to sort of you know dredge through every yellow card I do think it might be a bit problematic that you can review some decisions but not others I sort of think Mm. yellow cards are you know, they do cause issues for you with suspensions down the line.
1: Speaking of yellow cards, were you sort of half hoping for a Gabriel Jesus slash Saliba yellow yesterday or?
2: Oh, I hadn't thought of that.
1: Um, cause they then miss forest and definitely be available for Chelsea. Whereas if they pick up a yellow against forest.
2: Yeah, maybe that would have been smart. Um, Jesus probably thought he would get booked the way the game was going for him Um, getting booked for being fouled or testing I imagine Um, yeah maybe maybe but it didn't happen so on we go Uh, I had a question actually about uh, Saliba from uh, Louis Leddy and they said morning lads is Saliba's main weakness players running in behind him I've noticed when we concede goals it tends to be when players are running off the back of him um well I mean I think yesterday we we
1: we mentioned that he got diddled on the halfway line by mm-hmm. the step over so I don't know that it was a player running in behind him where I would have liked to have seen a bit more from William Saliba yesterday was as as Armstrong was making that run across uh, into the box he can see the run he's the player best positioned Uh, to see the best defender, anyway, uh, best position to see that run. He knows he's not going to get there. I just wonder if he might have given Ben White a shout because I think Ben gets a little bit flat, caught a little bit um, flat-footed for the goal. I don't think it's like, I'm not saying it's entirely his fault or anything like that, but because of the run coming in from behind, from his blind side or whatever, um, I, I don't, I just think when, Saliba makes a mistake or isn't quite perfect, I think he's 21. Mm. He's a 21-year-old central defender, and they are going to make mistakes. I mean, not just 21-year-old central defenders. All central defenders make mistakes. Um, But he's still in the very nascent stages of his footballing career, you know? And every game, every season is going to be part of his development and part of his learning. And I think every player has a weakness, whether that is his weakness or not. I can't say 100% for sure, but I'm sure when it comes to, you know, video analysis, when they video review the games, when they do the the sort of one-on-one coaching, all those kinds of things, you know, the club will be very aware of where those weaknesses are and will work with him and as they do with every player to try and address those. So, um I think it's still too early to say that is his weakness. But I do think there have been a couple of occasions this season where perhaps his awareness of what's going on, not necessarily behind him, or what could potentially be going on behind him, has been exposed a little bit. But, you know, he could well learn very quickly in those situations. So I'm not not especially worried.
2: Yeah, I think as well, you know, Arsenal have played a higher line this season, um, substantially so. And therefore... There is space in behind, and I suspect quite a few goals we concede will be a consequence of that. So you're sort of looking at it and going, oh, what sort of goals are we conceding? What's when people get into the space in behind. But that e- equally is what is allowing us to dominate territory in the game and create more attacking chances. So it's it, it's a trade-off, as with all things. Uh, I think actually the, the biggest danger to Saliba, because he's so good, I do think the biggest threat to him is... Complacency effectively within games. He's so composed that, you know, both against Leeds and against, um, who do play, I say Southampton? Yeah. And just a couple of sloppy giveaways. And it, it's, I honestly, I've always said every time I've seen Sleeper play since he was 17, 18, he has the air of someone who's just been the best at every level he's ever played at. And that gives him that swagger and that composure that's fantastic. But I just think every so often, that concentration can flip for a moment because he's so uber confident is my mm. kind of interpretation of it. Um, and again, that's something that will be ironed out. I think with, with more experience.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's what it is for me anyway. It's experience. You can't expect a 21 year old central defender, regardless of how good he is. And he's obviously really good. You can't expect him to be flawless and not make mistakes. And, um, yeah, that, that's all it is. Um, Where are we at? Yeah, sorry, go on.
2: No, no, I was just going to say, I don't think there's a, maybe apart from goalkeeper, I don't think there's a position on the pitch where experience has more importance, you know?
1: Yeah, that's true. And we're playing with a 21-year-old and a 24-year-old and we're top of the table. So, you know, it says a lot about how good they oh, are. The, the
2: table. Yeah. Right. yeah, right. Sorry, I forgot about that. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> it is good to remember that every it, now and then.
1: It again. is, isn't it? Um, let's do a couple of quick ones to uh, finish from the Discord. Yeah. Irma Gerd, per Mertesecker says, can we get a quick eulogy for Steven Gerrard?
2: Oh, man. I mean, those Aston Villa players look pretty thrilled he was gone, <laughs> didn't they? Yeah. <laughs>
1: Does anything wow. say we hated the manager more than the team going 3-0 up in like 10 minutes or
2: whatever I it know. was? Absolutely incredible. Um, yeah, I mean, genuinely interesting to see where he goes from here because his dream was obviously to go back to Liverpool. And I think if Villa <laughs> had gone well for him, you know, that door might have been open. But now it's really back to the drawing board.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. It it, it 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 wasn't a a spell that increased his reputation or enhanced his reputation, I should mm-hmm.
2: say. It's interesting, you know, not too long ago, you know, Arteta was being classed alongside the likes of Lampard, Gerrard, Solskjaer, you know, this sort of generation of ex-players mm. and he's outlasted them all. Uh, and as you point out, is top of the league. Um,
1: and the final one, we had another one uh, about this, which is still very funny, Chris Loco. Um Ben White's demeanor in post-game interviews is so hilarious, I almost feel like he's about to break character and burst out laughing at any given moment. Do we think, A, he refuses to show any of his real personality to journalists and the like because, well, fuck off? B, is a banter specialist slash comic genius with an acute fondness for irony and sarcasm? Or, C, is he just so uninterested in football he's already bored by the time he's left the pitch?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean... (laughs) Could be, could be a bit of all of these. Um, I don't know, but it's great fun. He does have slightly have the feel of something, a sort of career-long prank. Do you know what I mean? That he <laughs> is just going to refuse to play ball. Um, but I have to respect it. I have to respect it. He's And I, listen, I thought he did well again yesterday. We spoke about the assist, but, yeah, he's in really terrific form. Yeah. So. He can say whatever he wants, frankly, if he keeps playing like this. It was,
1: yeah, it was another classic interview. I kind of felt a, a little bit sorry for the, for the interviewer who um, yeah. I should point out is an Arsenal fan um, who replied to me on Twitter last night as well. He said, uh, Ben White is as chill as an ice cold sangria in Barcelona in July. An interesting challenge at interviews. Uh, Jonas Berg Jonsen, uh, who works for Viaplay in, in Norway, did that interview. But Ben White just sort of—it <laughs> is brilliant. I think you're right. There could be something to this. He's like sat down and said, "This is what I'm going to do." Because I think he's quite a—you uh, know—when you see the way he reacts to certain situations, you know, when his guard is down, if you like, he seems a very. Quite an extroverted sort of a guy, which is at odds with the uh, with the persona that he's got in the in the videos. Which yeah, is... I've got
2: a mate who's like a really nice bloke, but he he's got this thing where he won't allow himself to be photographed smiling. It's like a lifelong project where every time someone points <laughs> a camera at him, he doesn't smile. So there are no photos of him smiling in existence. And I kind of feel, and it is quite funny, and I kind of feel. Like that. What's that's what Mm. Ben White's doing in his post-match interviews.
1: Somebody told me um, that they um, they're a bit worried about putting Ben White in front of the cameras because they don't think he comes across as well as as well as he might, (laughs) Uh, particularly with a with a you know a communications department that can be a little bit um, anxious about certain things at times, but he doesn't give you the, you know, the by rote answer, you know, well, we did well out there today. You yeah, know, you know, yeah. You know, the, the I, media trained him.
2: answers. I'd never interviewed him. I would love to. Um, got to get him on the podcast, maybe. Yeah, I'd love to. And it would be a hell of a challenge. I, suspect. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's got a healthy, what I would call a healthy suspicion of the media.
1: I, I You wouldn't blame him, though. Why would no, you blame him scary. after you know, particularly after what happened last season when he came in and, you know, the 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 way he was hauled over the coals for the first game against Brentford and that became you know, I think I think particular pundits who should have known better were were a little too definitive in their judgment of him based on one performance on a weird night in sort of extraordinary circumstances and I think he's genuinely found it a little bit hard to to shed that, that tag that a lot of people made their minds up about him based on what they
2: said that night and I think it was completely unfair yeah um, well it's interesting you know because as Arsenal fans we're looking at the England squad Some, well some of us are and sort of you know well, I think all of us are wondering you know why isn't Ben White being selected not just for the England squad but the England team And we're maybe not seeing that degree of clamour replicated in the wider media. And, you know, genuinely, uh, in a point of seriousness, maybe Ben White's media persona plays into the fact that there aren't people, you know, batting for him. You know, we've seen it so many times where a manager who's like good with the media, gives them good copy, gets... Talked up all the time, you know, a red nap or Mourinho or whoever it might be, and there are certain players who I think manage their media commitments really well. I mean, somebody like Declan Rice, for example, is super media friendly. And then suddenly, all these journalists turning around saying he's a 150 million pound player, yeah, yeah, yeah. The captain. I do think there is something to that. Ben White refuses to play the game. He just refuses to play the game, which I respect enormously. Me too. Me too. I love it. But love may it. contribute, I guess, to the perception of him outside of Arsenal. I think that's fair,
1: but um, I've got much more time for the way he approaches it. And, uh, you know, there are and have been a couple of really fun interviews with him in the last couple of weeks. Because, yeah, yeah, you know yeah. what it is, it's just so different from all the usual post-match stuff. Do you remember there was one like, a uh, was it last season or maybe during one of the, the lockdown seasons? I can't quite remember, but... I think James Madison came yeah. out and spoke about could have been I can't remember whatever game it was, but he he touched on a couple of things that happened during the game on a on a tactical level, right? I don't think he was sort of groundbreaking in terms of what he was talking about, but he yeah. was it, it it's almost unusual or unique for a footballer. To go into that kind of depth in a post-match interview, and everyone's raving about this post-match interview, which you know, of course, is a lot more interesting than the yeah, well, we we'll, you know we'll get our heads down and uh, work hard on training ground and uh, you know do better next week, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think it it speaks to the paucity of of quality in these post-match interviews, and and that's not necessarily either to to be critical of the people asking questions. I just think by their very nature. These kind of interviews get you a certain kind of answer and very, very rarely do they go beyond that. So if Ben White is doing it differently in his own way, I'm on board. I'm on board with this. Um, and I think it should be out after every game.
2: Yeah, with Arsenal's uh, media department sweating, uh, stood off to the side about what he might say. <laughs> um- <laughs> But, you know, it's interesting, Madison's a great example. So I agree that was a, a good interview and it was great for the media as well, giving something to get their teeth into. Now you've got people, plenty of journalists, banging the drum for him to be in the World Cup squad. Uh, he's mm. another player who handles his media profile well. And I just think Ben, for whatever reason, just absolutely isn't interested in that. And that's fair enough. I, I mean, yeah, yeah, listen, I, 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 uh, I really like him personally.
1: I mean, if Ben White doesn't make the England squad for this World Cup based on his form this season. It's just absurd, particularly with some of the absences that England have. Diplomatic silence from you there, James. Okay, that's it. We are going to leave it there for now. It's a busy week, of course. PSV coming up later in the week uh, in the Europa League, away from home, a chance to top the group. For now, though, thank you as always for being here. Hope you enjoyed the show, and we will catch you on the next one.
2: Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: only from rustolium